we are just starting to understand what causes Alzheimer's disease. What is the relationship between the inflammatory protein, apoprotein E, and Alzheimer's disease? You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today is Dr. Cheryl Wellington. She is an associate professor at the University of British Columbia, where she has been working on APOE and Alzheimer's disease since joining their faculty in 2000. Prior to that, she received a Ph.D. from UBC and postdoctoral fellowships from Harvard, the University of Calgary, and UBC. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Thank you very much. It's a great opportunity to, to be here. I was wondering if you could first even just describe for our audience what apoprotein E is. Absolutely. ApoE is one of several apolipoproteins, and this means that it binds to lipids such as cholesterol and phospholipids. And this is required because lipids, of course, are not water-soluble, and so they require carrier proteins to move cholesterol from place to place within the body. The ApoE has a very special function in the brain. It's the major cholesterol carrier within the brain. And one very interesting fact that many people might not realize is that the brain is actually the most cholesterol-rich organ in the entire body. Unlike the rest of the body, the the brain is only 2% of the total body weight, yet a quarter of the body's cholesterol resides within the brain. So although we typically consider cholesterol to be the most important factor, one of the most important factors for cardiovascular disease, it has numerous roles within the central nervous system that we're just beginning to tap into. We've demonized it, and it's a shame because we actually do need cholesterol. Absolutely. Cholesterol is a very important component of all cellular membranes, and neurons, being a very specialized cell type, they're very membrane-rich. They have these long axons that are very, they're thin and wrapped with a, with a membrane, of course. And because they have such little cytoplasm, a lot of what they need, a lot of what neurons need, is really a really good program to maintain their uh, membrane integrity And because they're expected in the central nervous system to last your entire lifetime. That pathway of being able to repair any damage to neuronal membranes becomes a very important factor for several acute and chronic CNS disorders, including Alzheimer's disease. Let's try and make the connection, the synapse, if you will, between APOE and Alzheimer's disease. In 1994, APOE was discovered to be a genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And in the human population, APOE comes as three major genetic or allelic variants, and these are known as APOE2, APOE3, and APOE4. And we have two of each, correct? You have two of each, correct. One inherited from mom and one inherited from dad. And it was discovered that people that inherit one or two copies of the APOE4 allele have an increased risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. It's important to note that it's not a causative factor. If you have an APOE4 allele, it doesn't mean you will get Alzheimer's disease. It just puts you at an increased risk. So I have APOE3, E4. So I'm at a higher risk, but I'm not as high as a APOE4-4, correct? That's correct. You say I'm at increased risk, but what was my normal risk before, and what's my increased risk now that I have 3-4? Within case of APOE, it can decrease the age of onset for Alzheimer's disease. So typically... AD manifests in the majority of of patients, about 95% of patients. It's an age-dependent disease. So by current statistics, around 40% of people 
aged 80 and up have Alzheimer's disease. And if you place that onto an APOE genotype curve, if you have one APOE4 allele, you're more likely to get Alzheimer's disease about, you know, five to seven years earlier than the standard population with E3E3. And if you have two APOE alleles, the onset can be even sooner. How does APOE normally function? And then what kind of goes crazy and makes it develop into affecting Alzheimer's disease? That's a really great question. It's been one of the major research questions that the community is trying to address since the discovery of APOE as a risk factor for Alzheimer's. One of the things that we are really focusing on in our group is the relationship between APOE as the major carrier of cholesterol within the brain. Its normal function in the brain, we believe, is to facilitate this lipid transport system between neurons and glia, and this allows the brain to withstand injury to begin with and recover from injury and insult, whether it be acute, such as a traumatic brain injury or a chronic condition, such as an Alzheimer's disease, a neurodegenerative kind of condition. APOE is very important for this function of cholesterol transport within the brain. I got to jump in. I mean, the first thing I think of is our entire society is on statins, and you're saying our brain needs it, loves it, and actually uses it to repair itself. So is there a magic number where the brain kind of says, hey, I need a higher LDL than that? It's quite an interesting system because the brain's cholesterol metabolism is very distinct from that within the circulation. So in the circulation, we have the high-density lipoproteins, which are the good cholesterols. They're the ones that promote removal of cholesterol from the body. We have LDLs, and these are the major target of statins, and those are the bad cholesterol, and those are associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. In the brain, it is entirely HDL-based. There is no LDL within the CNS. And then furthermore, the major differences between the HDLs that are in the circulation are that APOA1 is the primary protein component on circulating HDL, but in the brain, it's APOE. So there's some some parallels and some distinguishing features between the cholesterol metabolic system in the circulation and the brain. The other thing to note is that cholesterol is not permeable across the blood-brain barrier. So the brain actually makes all of the cholesterol that it needs inside you. It doesn't take up any LDLs like other organs do. That is all news to me. That is amazing. It's quite the evolutionary package that cholesterol is so important to the brain that it's devised its own system to handle it. And your question about statins is is a very interesting one as well. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and joining me today is Dr. Cheryl Wellington. We're talking about APOE protein and Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Wellington, is there a therapy out there that kind of targets APOE or targets cholesterol or targets something else that may be contributing to the disease? The biggest news that might be of interest to the audience would be some of the results on trials and epidemiological studies associating statins with Alzheimer's disease. In the early 2000s, it was shown by retrospective epidemiology studies that people that took statins had a very much reduced incidence of Alzheimer's disease. And this was a quite a robust effect, but there were some some questions about those studies because they weren't placebo-controlled clinical trials. It was just simply an epidemiological observation. 
since that time, there's been a large amount of interest in understanding whether statins may have any therapeutic benefit for Alzheimer's disease patients. And there have been some prospective trials that have happened within the last seven years. And these are mixed, like many clinical trials are. Some are showing benefit, some are showing no change. One of the things that confounds a lot of these clinical trials is they might not be sufficiently powered to demonstrate a beneficial effect within the follow-up period. They also might be initiating treatment a little bit too late in disease because it's been also shown that there are several risk factors for Alzheimer's that overlap with cardiovascular disease. And this is pretty interesting because it turns out that midlife obesity, hypertension, and hypercholesterolemia all increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease around twofold many decades later. So it may be that we need to initiate treatments such as a statin pretty early in life relative to the onset of Alzheimer's disease in order to have an appropriate therapeutic benefit. Dr. Wellington, if my memory serves me correct, Alzheimer's disease, the best way to diagnose it is is actually postmortem by looking at the brain. So what if what if all these people are, are being labeled with Alzheimer's, but it's actually multi-infarct dementia, and that's why the statins are helping them? This is edging on areas where I can only comment peripherally. Yes, you're correct in saying that a definitive diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease does require the postmortem identification of the two neuropathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's, and these are the amyloid plaque and the neurofibrillary tangle. But a clinician can differentiate between uh, various types of dementia, including multi-infarct dementia, within, I think, this, the latest stats I've seen, 97 98% accuracy. So depending on the, the, the clinical tools that are used to assess the patients, one can differentiate Alzheimer's disease from other types of dementias with a high accuracy. And that, of course, depends on the astuteness of the clinician that is examining the patient. Now, having said that, there is a high degree of overlap between other pathological findings. So, for example, we typically consider the amyloid plaque. It's one of the the pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. And these are are plaques, accumulations of a peptide called A-beta, which can be deposited between neuronal cells within the neural parenchyma. But around 80 to 85% of Alzheimer's patients also have a deposition of A-beta within the cerebrovasculature. And this is a condition that is known as cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And this is such a high degree of overlap with Alzheimer's disease clinically and, and neuropathologically that there's a large number of people interested in whether it's the movement of A-beta across the endothelial cells within the cerebrovasculature that may also contribute to Alzheimer's disease. How distinct are these as as conditions is still an open question. What does ABCA1 contribute to the disease, and can you actually define what that is for the audience? ABCA1 is a recently discovered gene that is the causative gene for a disease called Tangier disease. And this is a disease that's characterized by almost no circulating high-density lipoproteins. And as a result, the inability to remove cholesterol from peripheral organs results in things like orange tonsils, which is one of the hallmark diagnostic features of Tangier disease. Patients with Tangier disease often exhibit with hepatomegaly, splenomegaly, peripheral neuropathy. It's a very, very rare disease. But biochemically, what ABCA1 does is to move cholesterol and phospholipids from the the plasma membrane of cells onto APOE1. So it's the rate-limiting step in the biogenesis of high-density lipoproteins. 
And up until our work on ABCA1 in the brain, all the work on ABCA1 had been done within the context of cardiovascular disease. It's highly expressed in macrophages. Increasing ABCA1 activity is beneficial for atherosclerotic disease, at least in, in animal models. And so the, the focus of ABCA1 has been on this process called cholesterol efflux. ABCA1 is also expressed within the brain, and our group and several other groups showed simultaneously that it is responsible for moving lipids onto ApoE in the brain. And if you are defective in this activity, at least in mice, this exacerbates amyloid deposition in models of Alzheimer's disease. So what that means is that the lipidation of ApoE by ABCA1 is a factor that is involved somehow in amyloid deposition or amyloid clearance. On that note, I'd like to thank Dr. Cheryl Wellington for joining us today. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.